Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week we're chatting to J.D. Kirk, who has written a lot of everything, really. Comics, screenplays, kids' books, and now crime books. We chat about how he stays mentally and physically healthy as he writes. Also, about the hectic routine of his writing year. And, as he self-publishes many titles, how much pressure he feels directly being involved in every choice while needing to make things financially work for the family. Pressure is fine if you have a sense of control that goes along with it. If you go, okay, this is this is pressure, but I can I can um, affect change on this. You know, when you're when you're working for traditional publishers, you have no real control over what's happening with your books. You've given your books over to a publisher, and they then decide everything that happens with that book. You know, I I wrote uh, three books for a publisher that were all written up front. And they decided to put one out a year for three years. And it's like, well, they're all written. Why are we holding off this this huge gap? Um, but that just that's what fit with their publishing schedule. Lots more coming up with JD Kirk in this week's Writer's Routine. Hello, welcome along. It's Writer's Routine, where we take a look through an author's working day. We dive down, we pick up some tips and advice about how they plan their work, their life, their day, their space to give them the best opportunity of getting an idea from their head onto the page. My name's Dan Simpson. Thank you very much for listening and sharing. Thank you very much also to Plotter, because for just a little while more, they are helping to power the show, just like their software can power your writing. Plotter is a writing tool that does what the title suggests. It plots. It helps you plan your books the way that you think. It lets you outline faster, organise smarter and turbocharge your productivity. It's something to use as you write. It takes care of the back end for you. And what I really love is when you open the software, you get everything that you need right there slap bang in front of you. You have the digital corkboard where you can easily swap between the timeline, the outline, your notes, the details on your characters and places. You can even tag all of them to make it easier for you to skim through and find what it is that you need. All of it is colour coded too, as maybe it is in a notebook, but this is on the page right next to where you're writing so you can take it anywhere. You never need to leave a notebook behind. And if you're a very visual writer who likes to see everything that is going on and whenever you want, in the simplest possible way, Plotter is perfect for that. It lets you track all the details of your plot at a scene level and switch, swap and use them however you like. And if you're struggling to move your plot on, there are over 30 proven plot templates just to give you an idea, a little nudge in the right direction from some of the best writers around. Plotter helps you spend more time writing and less time worrying about everything else. It helps you strip back to what is important and what you need to focus on. Now, the best way for you to see what it does and how stunning it looks, how helpful it can be, is by getting to go.plotter.com and taking a look around. And if you like what you see, if you think it might be helpful for you, you can help out the show by doing it. Because while you're there, you can get 10% off the software with this show. There are lots of different choices, how you want to get involved, whether you want it forever with a year of updates, whether you want it multi-device, whether you want updates as and when they come throughout your use of Plotter. 
you can do that with the discount that you've got using the link. It's in the episode notes, so you can click there to make it nice and easy. It's go.plotter.com slash routine. This week, we're chatting to J.D. Kirk all about his new crime novel, The One That Got Away. J.D. has written a lot of books, many under his other name, Barry Hutchison. As Barry, he's published over 170 kids' books, writing them at an incredible speed. He's also written screenplays, major comic series too, and now he's writing as J.D. Kirk. He's published the Robert Hoon thrillers. His DCI Jack Logan series have sold more than 3 million copies and spawned another series with a returning character. The new one is the first in that, in the D.I. Heather Filson series called The One That Got Away. It's all about a 15-year-old girl who doesn't make it home, so is suspected as being another teenage runaway. But when her grandfather a notorious Glaswegian gangster disagrees. It takes Heather Filson into a battle of underworld enemies and into the forgotten corners of her own past. We talk about the book. Also, we chat through his relentless writing schedule and why he's chosen to self-publish, what he thinks about having total control about his books, the way they are marketed and sold, and how even with all that going on, he keeps his mind on the writing. You can hear his hack for staying mentally and physically healthy as he writes, and why being injured has slowed his writing down. We run through the peculiar condition that he suffers from, why it took him a long time to realise what was going on, and why you might think when you hear about it, it would make it tricky for an author, but J.D. actually thinks that for some stages of the writing process, it actually makes it easier for him. There's all of that on the way, and we get into it, as we always do, starting with what he sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. I am currently sitting in my office, which is quite rare because normally I'm standing on my walking desk in my office, um, but I, I hurt my Achilles tendon recently and I can't uh, walk for any great length of time. So I'm sitting in my office. I'm looking at uh, a dual monitor setup uh, with uh, a little Ron Swanson from Parks and Recreation pop figure sitting in front of me, sort of um, scowling at me throughout the day. And then I'm looking at a lot of mess and quite a lot of Lego, which I'm in the process of building. Lego is like my meditation. Uh, when, I, when I'm when i stuck on a story point or something, I go and, and click some blocks together and everything just slots into place. Uh, let me ask you about this standing walking desk. People only mm. do that... It's a considered choice. It's you know, no no one's first option is to really stand up and write for hours. What what prompted you to do that? Why the why the decision? Uh, time has always been um, difficult for me because I have you know I've got children. I have elderly. Uh, my, my my elderly dad lives across the road. My uh, wife's elderly mother lives across the road from us, and we're always doing stuff for them and looking after neighbours and, and all kinds of things. So time has always been an issue. So finding time to exercise uh, was always difficult. And last year, I thought what would be a fantastic idea would be to construct a walking desk, which is a, a sort of standing desk with a treadmill underneath it, so I could walk and write at the same time, killing two birds with one stone. And uh, the first time I tried it, I, I shot myself off the back and um, and crashed into a bookcase, which wasn't a great start. Uh, and then so and then I started very slowly walking. And I thought first of all I would just walk while I was doing admin stuff and I'd write emails while walking and and the actual writing part I would probably do sitting down, you know. But um, as I got used to it, I, I find myself using it more and more for writing books. And I would get to the point when if there was an exciting bit in a story, I would speed the treadmill up. So I was kind of half jogging, so you're know, slightly breathless, and, and the, the the pulse is racing and everything, and um, and that really started to help with writing kind of exciting scenes. And um, because I, I hurt my Achilles a, a, kind of a week or so ago, I've been writing sitting down now, and I'm finding it so difficult to be creative when sitting down. And so um, my brain has sort of reprogrammed itself to, to only be able to write, you know, freely when I'm moving on the on the treadmill. So uh, yeah, it was a conscious decision, but but I stand by it as one of the best decisions I think I've ever made. Away from how it's impacting your brain creatively, has it had its has it done its work in helping you exercise? Are you feeling healthier? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I managed to do, kind of write you know three four thousand words and walk ten thousand steps at the same time. So I'm certainly getting in my sort of requisite number of steps in a day. 
Um, so, so yeah, it has been has been really effective in that that front. It's interesting. Recently on the show, I've been talking to authors a lot about cues, about things that writers do to let them know that this is the time where I need to sit down and write. My brain needs to switch on, and it sounds like almost you've unwittingly perhaps trained your brain to only kick into gear when you're walking. Now you've hurt your Achilles. Um, How are you getting on reprogramming things, I guess? It's starting to get there now. The first couple of days, uh, nothing came out. Just nothing came out of my head. And I was sitting there with my fingers on the keyboard and just like my brain was doing exactly that. It was waiting for that prompt to start writing and that prompt is usually the, the three beeps that the treadmill makes and then the floor is starting to move underneath me and my brain then goes okay it's time to write but because I was sitting here at my desk and it was lovely and comfy and I had a cup of tea and all that stuff my brain was like well no this isn't writing time now so so I'm not going to produce anything so I had to really drag it out that first couple of days and I fell way short of my sort of average daily word count and um, but today has been pretty good. Um, I think getting the exercise in on the bike, I've been cycling, uh, so so that's helped as well. That just kind of fires the brain up a little bit. So, um, yeah, I'm getting there slowly, but I'm looking forward to being able to get back on the treadmill again. Around you in your writing space, is, you've got the uh, Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec, you've got the Lego. It, is there anything else that's kind of creative and inspirational around you just to help flow? I have two big um, whiteboards. So this, these aren't really inspirational stuff. These are more sort of technical. I have two big whiteboards, one of which I just scribble random ideas on. And that might be ideas for this book. It might be ideas for the next book. It might be ideas for something that I never, ever get around to writing, but it's just full of scribbled ideas. Um, and the other one is is more for structured planning. And I have it broken out into, into screenplay style acts. So I have act one and I have act 2A, act 2B, and the midpoint twist between those, and then act three. And I have post-it notes that, that kind of break down the entire plot of the book that I'm currently working on. Uh, so so I have those. And creatively, I'm surrounded by just lots and lots of books, which is always uh, inspirational, and a calendar of the Golden Girls, uh, which my wife got me for Christmas. Is it normally an exciting calendar? Would you remember what 2022's was? Uh, no, I have. I didn't get 2022's calendar. Twenty twenty three April is the the late great Betty White um, as um, yeah, so as Rose. So um, yeah, I'm a big fan of the Golden Girls. <laughs> if I were to, who is it? Well, of course. If I were to look at your whiteboard and see some of the scribbles, would it make any sense to me, or is it purely just again a cue to remind you? Oh, I did have this thought. Uh, it's a mix of both, really. Some of it's quite structured. Some of it is like um, sort of mind map type stuff. So it will be, you know, a character's name and then bits coming off them, thinking about where their, you know, overall plot is going to end up. Um, and some of it is just random scribbles that probably now don't make sense to me when I look at them in any, you know, without the the, the benefit of just having written them. So things that are just, you know, random one words. Um, I mean, there's manual. The word manual is written up there, M-A-N-U-A-L. No idea what that refers to. Um, but I wrote that at some point in green pen. Um, don't know why, but... Uh, <laughs> But that's there. So there's lots of things that are, are just sort of scribbled down that um, may make sense at the time, but um, don't necessarily make sense later. Let's talk about the setup then. You, you talk about the dual screens. We get slightly slightly nerdy, I would say. Um, are you? Do you have a particular word processor? Are you a, a writing software, a Scrivener kind of guy? Is it, is it um, just Word and you don't really care? I'm I'm Scrivener all the way now. I used I I resisted Scrivener for quite a while. Um, the reason being, I was a, I was a Windows guy at that point, um, and I I used to write in Word, and I thought Word works perfectly well. I have I have no issues with it. And then um, I switched to uh, Mac MacBook, and I thought I'll try Scrivener again, and suddenly it all made sense why people were sort of raving about it. And being able to just move things around and, and go right, I'm leaving, I'm miss, I'm you know skipping this chapter and I'm writing this one and then I'm jumping back to that one and and all that stuff and just seeing it um, laid out like that in the sidebar, all the chapter by chapter and all the different scenes, 
uh, was really um, kind of mind blowing when I actually spent some time to to learn it. So uh, yeah, Scrivener all the way now. I have one screen, the screen directly in front of me currently has Scrivener open on it. And then uh, the screen off to my right a little bit has a browser window open, which is where I do my research and, and stuff like that. If there's something I'm uh, I'm not sure about, I'll just quickly Google it there and then switch back to Scrivener. So you seem to be quite a visual writer with the mind maps, with the dual screens working on Scrivener. Uh, how, how does that translate to fonts? Do you have any strong, staunch fonts opinion? Uh, not really. I am um, I'm generally a Verdana guy, um, but uh, I'm not that fussed about it. Uh, I'm not. I'm not keen on on serif fonts, particularly on the screen. Um, I don't mind them printed, but on screen, I like a, a fairly plain font. Verdana looks quite futuristic. Like it might be used for the manual for some computer on the international space station yeah it could be i hope it is because it'd be it would be a solid a solid choice for that um so yeah fingers crossed i don't know maybe we can find that out somehow maybe someone listening can knows they could let us know listen the show is writer's routine and we'll get into that in just a second i, I want to ask you a question while it's in my mind so you have written a lot of books so as jd kirk i mean it's upwards of 15 around 20 i think um You've written over 170, I think I was told, kids' books, which is astronomical. At what point along the way did you feel like you got it? Now, I know writing isn't really a pursuit that can ever be completed. I don't think I would, I could ever speak to an author who will say, yeah, I, I know exactly what I'm like. I know exactly how good I am. I can start a book and I can crack it off. There's no problem anymore. But at what point in, I guess, almost 200 books did you feel start to think all right i'm i'm starting to understand now i i i know kind of what i'm like as a writer and how i work best and my style um i think i'm very much still finding that out to be honest i every book i write i assume this is the one that people are going to realize that um they've made a terrible mistake all the way along you know i mean i i my first uh children's books were picked up by harper collins i wrote those when i was uh how old was I? About 30, 29, 30. So that was 2007. Uh, they got picked up and I'd written one book and I sent that to, uh, it was part of a competition. There was an agency running a competition and they would pick 10 winners and um, those winners would get a full sort of um, written feedback on their manuscript, you know, detailed agent's feedback. So I sent this in my manuscript into the competition and about a month later, the agency called me up and said, we'd like to take you out of the competition. And I assumed they meant the book was so bad that they actually, you know, they wanted to make me aware that they were removing it from the competition. Um, but instead they said, we'd like to represent it. And we think HarperCollins might be interested. So um, they took it to HarperCollins. HarperCollins came back and said, could you do six of these? And I said, yep. And they said, great, can you give us the outline for the next five by two o'clock this afternoon? Because we have a meeting about it. And this was 12 o'clock. Uh, so I had to kind of come up with the plots for the next five books um, in that sort of couple of hours. And then they took it on and then I wrote the second book and I was convinced at that point when I was writing that second book, I thought HarperCollins are going to ask for their money back because they're going to see this book and go, this is terrible. We've made a mistake. Um, I eventually said with one day to go before the deadline, I sent it in and thankfully they didn't say that. Thankfully they liked it. But every book I think has been exactly the same. Every book I put out, I assume this is when people are going to realize that I have no idea whatsoever what I'm actually doing. So consciously, I I don't think I've got it. Um, subconsciously, if I don't study it too much, it seems to just all sort of hang together okay. So um, I, would, I wouldn't, I would by any stretch of the imagination, call myself an expert on, on writing. Um, I just sort of blunder through, and so far, that seems to have paid off. 
So on a normal working day, let's imagine I haven't I haven't hurt myself recently. Let's imagine it's a normal standard working day. Um, I will get up uh, sort of about half seven, uh, seven o'clock maybe. Uh, we will. I've got my my daughters at home, so we'll kind of we'll all have breakfast, get her organised for school, all that stuff, uh, and then I will head to my office. I I used to work from home but I have accumulated too many toys and Lego sets and all that stuff that my wife eventually kicked me out and I managed to get an office a um, couple of miles from home, which is great because I can come in here and I lock the door and I have complete freedom to um, put on music, to do whatever I want. So I uh, come in here for about nine. I will generally write until about 12, usually on the treadmill, and then um, I will kind of take a break, have some lunch, and then crack on with like responding to readers' emails, setting up uh, newsletters, and and all that sort of stuff. So the sort of the business side of it is generally done in the afternoon. The creative side is done in the morning. Now that's a massive change for me because when I, you know, I've, I've been writing. I wanted to be an author since I was nine years old. I sold my first piece of written work when I was seventeen, which was a screenplay. And I uh, I used to always work really late into the night and then um, I had children and that had to change drastically. But I always had myself pegged as a, as a nighttime writer. Um, and that took a few years to switch to that, being able to write in the morning now. But now, now it's the other way. Now I can't write in the evening because I just fall asleep because mm-hmm. I'm old. <laughs> the uh, three hours thereabouts of writing that you're getting done in the morning... Is is there a an aim? Are you going by a word count? Is it just see how much you can get done? No, I always have a, a target. I have I use PaceMaker, the um, it's a bit of software that lets you you kind of plug in how many words you want to do, when you want to be finished the book by, uh, whether you want to take weekends off or whether you want to you know do less at the weekends or do more at the weekends or whatever you want, and it tells you how many words you need to write in order to hit that goal. So I'm normally around about two and a half thousand words a day. Um, so so if I if I don't hit that, then um, I may, you know, run into the afternoon a bit by by continuing the the writing part because that's the most important important part. Um, I need to hit that word count, or in my mind at least, I'm not doing my job properly um, because my job is is to write. It's not to tweet. It's not to you know send newsletters. My job is to write books. So um, so that's the key. I have to hit that word count every day. How easily do you find the words coming out? Because you have written almost 200 novels now. Um, we, we, we've spoken about how maybe your subconscious is or your mind saying, well, are you, are you still the writer that they're looking for? But because you've written so much, are you quite good at getting the words down in those three hours? Do they come simply to you? Yeah, yeah. But I've always been able to write quickly. You know, when I was writing for children's publishers, I'd be writing for, you know, three or four different publishers at the same time. And quite often they'd be they'd be ghostwritten books and they'd say, right, we need this book done by a week on Friday. It's 30,000 words. Can you do it? And I would go, okay, because I wanted to be able to keep a roof over my family's head and feed my children. So I would I would say yes to everything that came along, and I learned to to just write very very quickly, uh, and and I do I find it quite quite straightforward. I also have a thing called aphantasia, and aphantasia is a um, a, a, lack, a complete lack of mental pictures. So you know if you if you close your eyes and picture a you know a blue ball. Most people will see a blue ball to some degree or another. Some will see a perfectly clear 3D blue sphere. Some will see a vague kind of blue image. I see nothing but darkness. I think exclusively in words and not in any form of pictures. And I think that's really helpful for for writing quickly because I think with a lot of writers, you know, if they're describing a scene, then they picture that scene and they picture everything in that scene and then they have to you know, translate that picture into words and write those words down. For me, it originates as words in my head, so I kind of skip out a step and I'm able to just, you know, translate those words into the keyboard. I've, been, I've heard 
a, a, quite a lot about aphantasia recently, as opposed to, you know, a few months ago, I, I don't think I'd ever heard of it. Um, at what point, did, I just try, I'm trying to figure out it, at what point you realized that this was a thing, because unless it's flagged up to you that how a, you're thinking completely differently to how a lot of people are thinking, you, why, why would you ever, why would you ever consider that? At what point did you realize that this was something that you had? Well, that's it. Exactly. I'd never considered it. I assumed everyone thought the same way that I did, as I'm sure we all probably do, you know, um, but my family and I were over in uh, the United States, we're on holiday, and I can't remember the exact conversation, but my son said something that made me realise that he saw mental pictures in his head, that he wasn't just using it as a figure of speech, which I always assumed that's what mental pictures was. It was just, you know, things you think about in your head. Um, and I, it kind of really shocked me. And I went to my wife and daughter sort of laughing, saying, can you believe that our son sees mental pictures in his head he reckons he can see things in his mind and they both looked at me like I was insane and went well of course he can you know that's 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 everyone can do that and we had this big kind of conversation then as as I gradually realized to my horror that they were seeing the world or thinking about the world in an entirely different way to the way that I was um, and I started doing some reading up and stuff, and I discovered this aphantasia and what it was, and, and you know how it affects people, and um, and yeah, it's it's fascinating how how differently we we kind of perceive the world. And it suddenly made sense some things from you know from when I was younger. Like I remember when I wasn't able to sleep, my dad would say, "Well, count sheep," and I would think, "What are you talking about? You know what what sheep? There are no sheep to count." Um, but of course, he meant picture them in your mind and count them but i wasn't capable of that has it impact looking back does it impact how you read when you're reading someone else's novels about a character i don't know up to some adventure you must be kind of reading that and doing a much different thing than many other readers yeah i think that's why i i'm really drawn to um books with a lot of dialogue I I'm, I'm, I don't enjoy books with pages of description because it's doing nothing for me. You know, I, like I, it's not it's not helping me form a picture of the scene. I just know they're in a room, you know, and I get a vague idea of the room, and that's all I need to know. I don't need to know all the details. I don't need to know the tread of the carpet and all that stuff. I because it it will immediately leave my head anyway, and I just want to go on with the story. So. Um, so yeah, I, I like I like books that are that are quite dialogue driven. Um, but ironically, a lot of people um, really love the descriptions of my books. I can you know I can describe if someone says describe a beach, I can absolutely describe a beach. I can describe all kinds of beaches, but I'm not picturing them first. I just I just have a list of attributes that that um, apply to a beach, and I can draw on those and 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 use those. So a lot of readers um, because my the crime fiction is all set in the highlands of Scotland. A lot of readers will say how kind of evocative the the description is of, of being in the highlands of Scotland and all that stuff. And and for me, it's just it's just words on a page. When you first discovered this about yourself, um, you would have published many many books, I imagine. Did discovering this? Did this for the short term for the next few books? Did it change how you thought about your writing? How much did you... Because it's quite a significant thing for a, a writer to discover that they are thinking and picturing quite differently to a, many, many other people. How much thought did you give that as you then started writing since the, the, the diagnosis in the immediate aftermath? Um, I don't know if it changed that much. I was probably more aware when it came to... Um like the writing the scenery descriptions or writing character descriptions or things like that, I was probably more conscious of the fact that people were going to be, this was going to be conjuring an image in people's minds, which it doesn't for me. So um, it was more sort of novelty, I suppose. It was kind of going, you know, like, oh, this is, this is an interesting thing. It didn't really change how I wrote. It was more just how I thought about how it was going to be perceived at the other side. And it was more just like a, well, that's an interesting thing without it actually having any impact on what I was doing, I would say, but maybe not. Maybe, you know, maybe 
if I was to to go back and study that period, things would be slightly different. But um, I didn't feel it at the time. It just felt like a like an interesting little discovery I had made. You're writing in an office now, and you're walking when you can write in the office. Um, well, when you can walk and write in the office. When when you come home, how how much does that affect? thinking about the book and the story and your work when you are at home, has it been much more helpful to you in that when you leave the office, you leave your work and your thoughts about your story there? Yeah. I mean, I never leave the thoughts behind. It's always, it's always kind of knocking around in my head in some way, but the, the office was part of the reason for the office was to create that sort of separation between work and home, because it was as, as so many people will know now who've been working at home during the pandemic and all that stuff, it all becomes a bit sort of, intermingled and it becomes difficult to separate the two so um if i was at home you know my my wife would come in and my kids would come in and be chatting to me and which is always welcome but you know when you're when you're deep in writing a book it can be a distraction it can take a while to get back into and also kind of on the flip side of that i'd be kind of with my family then i would say oh i need to go and write something down and i'd go through to my office at home and two hours later i would emerge having you know knocked out a chapter of the book so it's been really helpful for just separating those two things out. I still do occasionally write at home, um, you know, if there's a bit of free time or I've got my laptop there and I fancy doing something, then I will still do that. But by and large now, the office is for work and Lego and um, home is for, is for home. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We're back with more from J.D. Kirk, chatting about the new novel, The One That Got Away, in just a second. I just want to say, if you're enjoying the show... Uh, as always, if you like what we do, if you've learned anything along the way in almost 270 episodes now, anything that has just helped the way that you write your stories, that you plan your day and your space, if there's just one tip that makes you keep coming back, uh, you can support the show, you can help us carry on doing it. It's only me, it's kind of a one-man operation here, and you can help that continue patreon.com forward slash writers routine by becoming a backer it's not a lot just a few dollars a month helps us keep going uh, it gets you merch it gets you obviously our eternal thanks there is bonus content there is even a way for your book to sponsor this show and we've got a little writing community over on patreon too where we're chatting and, and running through uh, different books that we're reading different fonts that we like to use we're sharing tips we're sharing advice 
uh, all the time over there and it doesn't cost you a lot to get involved i know times are tight so anything that you can send over is extraordinarily helpful you can sign up for as long or as short as you like and i would love to see you involved by becoming a backer at patreon.com forward slash writers routine Let's get back into it then with J.D. Kirk chatting about his new novel, The One That Got Away. It's the first in the new D.I. Heather Filson series. We talk about why it all started as a challenge and you can hear about the process of bringing back a character too. Also, we run through why he chose to self-publish and turn away from traditional publishers and why that choice is actually different for every author. And uh, we've run through so far how JD is is busy writing many, many books. And we pick things up talking about how he plans all that into the routine of a year. So what used to happen, I used to write, like I say, for a a kind of multitude of publishers. And I would never know what was coming in later that month. So I would, um, I'd be working on something and then a publisher would get in touch via my agent and say, we need this book done. Can you fit this in? So I would do that and then I'd be doing something else. And then, um, and it was a, it was always a, a fairly relentless, you know, checking of emails to see if a new offer had come in from somewhere else. Or if I was working with, you know, six or seven or eight publishers at different points. Um, and some of that was nonfiction. Some of that was ghostwritten uh, fiction. Some of it was, uh, TV tie-in fiction, some of it was my own stuff. So I was always working on multiple projects and it was really unpredictable and I never quite knew what was happening at any one time. For the crime fiction, um, I made the decision because I'd, I'd self-published a uh, a comedy science fiction book in 2016 because I'd been asked to go into a school up here in the Highlands and talk about how kids could publish their own work. And I had absolutely no idea how kids could publish their own work. As far as I was concerned, you typed up a book, you emailed it to the publisher, and kind of six months to two years later, a book appeared somewhere in the world. And that was my whole understanding of the process. But the the school was offering to pay me to come in for a week and run these workshops. So I thought, well, I'll learn how kids could publish their own book. And I self-published a comedy science fiction book called Space Team on Amazon Kindle. And within a couple of weeks, it was outselling all of my kids' books combined. And I thought, well, this is interesting. Uh, I ended up writing 12 books. Well, still writing the kids' books. I wrote 12 books in the Space Team series um, and was making more from those books in half a day than I was making in six months from 170 children's books with a variety of different publishers. So I thought, well, I'm going to, I had this idea for a crime novel that I wanted to write. So I thought I'm gonna I'm gonna not gonna take that anyway. My agent was looking wanted to take it to different publishers and see, you know, if they were interested. But I thought, no, it's probably gonna be a one-off. I'm going to publish it myself and that'll be that. I'll put it out, it's gone then, and then I can move on with with whatever else I want to move on with. So I wrote the first DCI Jack Logan book, A Litter of Bones. Um I self-published that on uh in May 2000 and 19 yeah so four years ago and it immediately within two or three days started outselling the entire space team series combined and i thought okay this is this is also interesting um and i thought i'm going to try writing another one and i've now written uh, i've written 16 dci logan books and I've written a four-book spin-off series, and the first in a new spin-off series um, is is coming out. And uh, yeah, so I do. So I've done about twenty odd of those now. So now I've got it down into a almost like a kind of um, like a conveyor belt system of knowing. You know, I have a team of people, so I no longer just self-published. We have a publishing company. Uh, we have editors, we have cover designers, we have people doing marketing, we have all that stuff, international sales agents. And um, we've now kind of sold over 3 million copies of the DCI Logan series. And um, so so that's going great. So so now um, I, can, I can pretty much plan out my entire year, uh, you know, six months in advance. So I go, you know, middle of middle of this year, I will know what I'm writing in 2024. And it will generally be... I will write a book in about 30 days. Um, I will send that to an editor. While I've been writing that book, I will have had sort of formulated the idea for the next book. 
And once the editor's looking at the first draft of, of the book I've just finished, I'll be making the notes and plotting out the the following book. I then get my stuff back from the editor. It goes through the editing process. And then once that's all sent off, and once the audiobook narrators have got that and the sales rights agents have got it, then I will start writing on the next one. So I will generally have, after that final draft is sent off everywhere, I will have about two weeks um, sort of break, which is just me um, kind of just having a bit of time off, really, but still thinking about the story and thinking about the plot. And then I sit down again two weeks later and I start writing again. So um, it's a roughly for a book from from kind of conception to being finished and sent off to um, to print is about two and a half to three months. So that's relentless. So how many are you getting? You've done what? Uh, almost 20 in four years. I've written 21 and a half. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So a few questions. Um, wh- why do you think th- the self-publishing has sold so well? Um, I'm honestly not sure. I mean, the the, the kids' books I was doing, the, the reason I kind of got a bit fed up with, with writing children's books for um, traditional publishers was that the the sales and marketing team started to have a much bigger say in what books were being put out and which is fair enough you know they are a business and the sales and marketing team have a have an insight into what's going to sell and what isn't but what would happen was you know i would i would pitch an idea to my editor and the editor would love it and go right we're going to do this and take it to an acquisition meeting and then at the acquisition meeting the sales and marketing department would say can we put a unicorn in this because unicorns are really big at the moment or you know or can we stick a talking cat in it or whatever or can we make it for instead of it being a sort of gritty horror for 12 year olds can we make it a funny horror for seven year olds or um so they would change things and sometimes it felt quite arbitrary what they were changing and i kind of didn't necessarily agree with it but they would go well we can't we can't pick it up unless you make these changes so you would kind of go along with it with the self-publishing stuff I've been able to just completely trust my own instincts and go, okay, these are the stories that I want to write. And um, and if people like them, great. If they don't like them, then that's entirely on me, but I don't have to kind of compromise my vision, which, which sounds a bit of a grandiose way of saying it, but um, I don't have to compromise these ideas for the sake of a sales and marketing department. So I've been fortunate that both with the Space Team books and especially with the DCI Logan books, they have successfully found an audience. And then by finding that audience quite early on, word of mouth has just helped them kind of continue to grow. So I think it's just having confidence in in your own um your own ideas really of, of kind of going, this is this is what I want to put out into the world. This is what I feel compelled to put out into the world, this story, and not not having to compromise on that has um has paid off i think and because it's all down to you now you've got a big team around you uh how has the pressure changed and how are you dealing with that no longer is it does it kind of go to the publisher and they do everything it it, i guess it seems like it's a lot more on your head now and that could explain why you've written 21 books in the last four years, which is just astronomical. Like you could give yourself time off. You could not write that many books. Why Why is it so relentless? How much does that pressure of it being now your company almost, why, why does that, how much does that change things? Um, I mean, this is me actually slowed down compared to what I was doing before. You know, as I say, I did 170 books um, in 10 years for children's publishers writing multiple books at the same time. I also wrote hundreds of comic strips for the Beano. I wrote and different comics as well. I wrote Power Rangers comic. I wrote uh, Angry Birds comic, DC Superhero Girls. And I wrote TV episodes for animation and stuff like that. So so this is quite a sedate pace for, for how I kind of write. I'm writing one book at once and not having to juggle between multiple different projects. So this feels like a quite a comfortable steady pace for me and I, I you know when I'm working in a book the ideas for the next few generally just pop into my head 
and I kind of go, right, I need to write those down. And I know they will continue to circulate in my head unless I get them written and out into the world. So I can, uh, when I have an idea, I will fixate on that idea. When I write it, I immediately forget that idea. It's like I, I've forgotten what's happened in almost every book I've written. You know, people will say, um, oh, I love that part or, or reference a joke that someone's made or reference a plot point. And I generally have no idea what they're talking about because once it's, once it's written, I can kind of get rid of it from my head. So um, if I wasn't putting these books out all the time, I think I would constantly be tormented by all these things just sort of circulating around. But in the, on the pressure front, it's very different because um, I think pressure is fine if you have a sense of control that goes along with it. If you go, okay, this is, this is pressure, but I can... I can um, affect change on this. You know, when you're when you're working for traditional publishers, you have no real control over what's happening with your books. You've given your books over to a publisher, and they then decide everything that happens with that book. You know, I I wrote uh, three books for a publisher that were all written up front, and they decided to put one out a year for three years, and it's like, well, they're all written. Why are we holding off this this huge gap? Um, but that just that's what fit with their publishing schedule. I with HarperCollins, I had a book published on the same day as David Williams did, um, also published by HarperCollins, and and they rebranded their social media and rebranded their website to push this David Williams book, and they didn't even mention my book was coming out. They didn't tweet about it or anything, even after I'd asked them to do it. So you have no control over what happens with your book when you put it out via a traditional publisher. By doing it yourself, yes, there's the, the pressure that if it fails, it's entirely on you, but it's got a much higher chance of success because you can go, right, well, I can see immediately what's working. If I do X type of advertising and that brings in a certain number of sales, then I know that I'll do X type of advertising again. If I do you know, Y type of advertising and nothing happens, I won't do that again. So I have that control to be able to um, to help shape the success of the book. So it's a different type of, of pressure, I think, than, than writing for traditional publishers. So many people have a dream about becoming a, a published author in a traditional way of seeing their book on the shelf with HarperCollins or with Bloomsbury or whoever it is written on the side, when you first started self-publishing, uh, did you kind of take to it easily or was there still a, a part of you that uh, kind of thought, well, this is kind of, maybe this is different from how, I, how I'd wanted it to go or because you'd already done the traditional thing, was it perfectly fine? Uh, yeah, it was perfectly fine. Yeah, it was, for me, it's always been about getting stories to as many people as possible you know so that's i think that's what every writer wants um is is to write a story and have as many people as possible enjoy that story so um and for me the best way of doing that has been by self-publishing now when i say we self-publish now it's no longer just we don't just stick it on kindle you know we are in bookshops all across the uk we've been in the supermarkets we're in you know anywhere you buy books you can generally buy the jd kirk series so we are a fully fledged publisher now and and i'm just i'm kind of moving back to just being a writer but a writer for a publisher that i am lucky enough to own <laughs> rather than a publisher that um that you know is owned by rupert murdoch or whoever it may be so um at, at, at the start sorry uh, there at the start of this 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 part of the the journey for want of a better phrase uh, and and you say that now you're back to being a writer who happens to own a publishing company at at the start did you find that other decisions were almost a bit, getting a bit too much in the way of creative writing choices that you were making no i think because I've, we've kind of grown, so so I did it as simply as possible to start with. Really, no, that first book was just was supposed to be a learning process and nothing else. So I, I designed a cover myself quite quickly in Photoshop. I um, I edited it myself, and I just put it on Kindle to see how that process worked. So there was no learning process there, um, and I've just picked things up as I went along. So there was never any real 
pressure to go, this has got to be a success because it was already, I was already making more money from the, the space team books than I was from my kids' books. And more importantly, was feeling far more creatively fulfilled, knowing I can write the sort of weird, random sci-fi comedy nonsense that I would love to read myself and put it out there. And I don't have to worry about... Uh, you know, someone in the publishing company not getting the jokes or thinking, you know, that it, it didn't work or the, whatever. I was just able to write what I wanted and put it out. So creatively, it was massively rewarding. So I, I was having the best time of my life writing, I think, when I when I just first started in, in indie publishing. Um, so what, what I think is interesting now is I think that the point you made there about um, seeing your book on the shelf with a publisher's name on the spine, that feels almost like the whole the whole concept of vanity publishing before was people who would publish their own work or pay someone else to publish their work so they could see a book in print. And and I see you know being an indie publisher now. I'm seeing so many indie publishers. You know, L. J. Ross, crime fiction author, second biggest selling author on Amazon of all time. So after James Patterson, and she self-published her own books. Um, I think the people that are actually getting their stories more widely read are the people that are in the publishing. And I think we're, we're getting to the point when traditional publishing is almost becoming vanity publishing because you're going, well, no, I want to be picked up by that publishing house. I want people to know that HarperCollins have approved of my book. I want to go and speak... At, um, be invited to speak at literary festivals and, and and all that stuff, because people and there's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely, you know that's that's great. Um, but that feels a bit like because I want people to know that I'm an author, rather than going, what is the most effective way to let as many people as possible read the story I have written? And for me, that's very much indie publishing. The DCI Logan series was the was the first series and is the main series. Um, there was a character in that who appears in book two onwards called Robert Hoon, who was um, Detective Superintendent Robert Hoon. And he was a character that was very much a Marmite character and a lot of people hated him and a lot of people loved him. He was supposed to be like a pretty, just a, an awful um, grumpy boss that would kind of get in the way of the investigation. Just another obstacle for Logan and the team to overcome. But I started getting more and more emails about him, um, people saying they really enjoyed him, people saying they hated him. And I thought I would set myself a challenge of writing a book about him. And I ended up writing, it was going to be three books uh, with him as the main protagonist. And the first one was called North Wind. And the second one was called Southpaw. And the third one was called Westward. And it was my son who said, you can't not do four. You can't have north, south, and west and not do an east. And I kind of thought, oh, yeah, fair enough. So I ended up writing four books about him, and then that was his story done. You know, he still appears in the Logan books, but that was his his standalone stuff done. Um, but while I was doing that, I found I, I really enjoyed just exploring the sort of the wider DCI Logan universe, you know. So those those Hoon books are connected to the Logan books, but you can read them separately. They can be you can read them on their own and never read the Logan books, and that's absolutely fine, and vice versa. So I wanted to kind of do the same again and just explore another sort of part of, of this world that I'd started to create. And Heather Filson is a character who appears in just a couple of the Logan books. And generally, most readers disliked her. Um, and so I, the reason I sort of picked her to, to focus on was because I like, I like doing that. I like taking that sort of character that people don't necessarily like or, or you know, expect to, me to write a spin-off about and sort of exploring them a bit more and maybe trying to win people over to them. So it's like a... I don't know. It's like a sort of masochistic thing I'm doing. I'm going right. I'm going to. I'm going to punish myself. I'm making this as difficult as possible to get people rooting for this character who they already dislike, and following you know, and sort of cheering them on throughout their own books. So, um, so that's why I picked Heather for um, this spinoff. Now, having spoken to you for the last fifty odd minutes, it would seem that I. It's not hard for you to come by ideas when you 
decided you were going to make a new series about D.I. Heather Filson, that she would be your main protagonist. How did you know what the plot would be? Just tell us about the first moment that the idea for what became the actual story came to you. Well, the idea for the story actually came um, before her second appearance in the Logan book. So she makes one very brief appearance in an earlier Logan book and then in a book, um, City of Scars, which I think is about the 14th Logan book, thereabouts. She makes a much bigger appearance. And the reason for that bigger appearance was I had this sort of germ of an idea about her own standalone book um, just prior to that. So I brought her into that book so I could sort of develop her a little bit further and just test the water and see what people thought of her and maybe start sort of redeeming her slightly. Um, So the plot for it um, has been sort of knocking around my head since her first appearance because I kind of, when I'm, when I'm, Introducing characters at all, I generally have a bit of a background story for them, which may or may not appear in the book anyway. You know, I just just so I can get to know that character, I sort of go, right, where have they come from? You know, what have been their big challenges in life? What shaped them to be the person they are? So I knew something had happened to Heather um, in her childhood. Um, and I decided that that, would make a great basis for something that happens to her later on in life. These two events are connected um, and that is what gets explored in The One That Got Away, which is her first standalone book. So, so it was while I was, while I was creating her, her kind of background story that it, it triggered the idea for this thing that was going to happen to her in the future. And we've spoken about mind mapping and your planning but before you sat down to write the one that got away, how much did you know about the entirety of the plot? Uh, I knew all of it. Yeah, I, I um, for depending on the book, I, I kind of dictates how much planning I do. So for the space team books, comedy sci-fi stuff, there was almost no planning done whatsoever. I had a vague concept, then I would head in that direction, and eventually I would get there, and that was that was fine. Those were the that was the kind of books those were. For crime fiction, obviously, you need to know, you know, who done it, if there's been a murder or, or presumably there's been a crime of some kind in crime fiction. So you need to know who the guilty party is. You need to know uh, why they did what they did. And they need to start seeding clues through and how the detective's going to stumble upon these clues and all that stuff. So for crime fiction, I plan it out in quite a lot of detail. And with, with the one that got away being the first one in a new series, I wasn't just planning out that book I was establishing that corner of the world so I needed to know who does Heather Filson work with on a daily basis you know who's waiting at home for her and all that stuff so so it took quite a lot of planning to get that first one in a position where I felt comfortable writing with the Logan books it's less than that because I know all these characters inside out now and I know all the relationships and and all that stuff so um, for the Logan books I just kind of know you know, who the killer is, why they did what they did, and then I can kind of head towards that and just seed the clues as I go. Now, off the back of writing a lot of kids' books and then moving into the world of crime, I know that crime readers are very discerning and uh, you, your descriptions of the police force and how things are done needs to be quite bang on because readers know a lot and take in a lot of different crime stories. When you first were writing crime and still to today, how do you approach research? Who did you turn to initially to make sure that everything was right? Well, see, that's that's what kind of put me off writing crime for a long time is I'm naturally a very lazy person. And um, the idea of doing loads of research um, sort of turned me off the idea for a while. And then um, I was talking to a couple of other crime authors and they pointed out that um, a police murder investigation is tedious. It's really, really dull. It's lots of people knocking on doors and it's people sifting through paperwork and it's nothing whatsoever like we we see on TV or read about in books, really. And ultimately, as long as you can get a a grasp of, of how an investigation might feasibly work, of what departments are involved um, and what the, uh, the general process is, then that's basically all readers really 
care about. They don't they don't generally care about it being a hundred percent accurate because if it was a hundred percent accurate, it would be dull. So they want they want a sort of um like an air of it being convincing, but uh it's still being very much about the characters and story um above all else. So so I write um what I hope are sort of um interesting mysteries with with characters people enjoy um, reading about, and then I I chuck in a couple of acronyms and hope for the best. Is <laughs> basically the uh, the truth of it. And that is it for this week's writers' routine. Thank you so much to JD Kirk for Barry Hutchison coming on the show. Uh, he's all self-published, so give him a search online. He's on Kindle. He's in bookshops, as you heard too, and you can find all of his books. So many as we've discussed, uh, and and have a read. Thank you so much to Barry JD for coming on the show. Next week we are back with a brand new uh, author for you sharing their writer's routine. I've got loads more on the way. If there's ever an author that you want to hear from, by the way, uh, let me know and I'll see if I can set something up. Use the contact page at writersroutine.com. In the meantime, you can always give us a follow on Twitter. We are at writerspod there. Share a review on Apple if that's how you're listening. And you can support the show patreon.com forward slash writersroutine. And I will see you next week with a brand new author. Until then, bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.